Thank you for downloading this podcast from Pardes, North America. This episode of the Pardes Parsha podcast features Rabbi Michael Hatton on Parshat Devarim. For the latest episode of the Parsha podcast, please visit elmod.pardes.org. And now, Rabbis Alex Israel and Michael Hatton. Shalom. Welcome to Pardes from Jerusalem. My name is Alex Israel. My name is Michael Hatton. And we're delight, delighted to be with you here to talk about Parshat Varim, a new sefer, a new book in the Torah, the fifth of the five books of Moses. And uh, Devarim means words. The man Moshe, who said, Lo ish Devarim anochi, the man who said, I am not a man of words, seems to have found his stride in Sefer Devarim and uh, found his ability to speak. And this book Devarim is called by the rabbis, Mishneh Torah. Some of you will know the English or the Latin um, name for that, which is Deuteronomy. Um, Mishneh Torah, the repetition of the Torah, the repetition of the law. Ind- indicating that what Moses is doing here in Devarim is he's sort of uh, repeating things. He's going over them again. He's going to be telling the story for a second time. Moses is going to be dying very, very soon. And before he leaves, he wants to review. He wants to say these things over Mishneh Torah to repeat. And we have a very long speech of Moshe. So, Michael, I wanted to turn to you. You know, how do you see this book in terms of Mishneh Torah? Is, is, is Devarim indeed a repetition? Are we hearing things verbatim for the another time? How do we deal with this question of repetition? It's a great question, Alex. You know, I really liked what you said about Moshe being lo ish devarim anochi, which he said at the burning bush. You know, I'm not a man of devarim of words. And and clearly here, these are many words that Moshe is going to share. I think your point that um, Moshe really is, at the end of his life, is very significant. In a sense, this is not just Moshe's words, but Moshe's last word and testament, i.e., what is it that he wants to communicate to his people before he leaves them forever? Right, and whenever you, your time is numbered, things become more critical. Correct. And, you know, according to the, uh, you know, the, the chronological marker at the opening of this book, Moshe begins his words at Rosh Chodesh Shabbat, and tradition will place his death at the seventh day of Adar, so it's really just a few weeks. Right, Th- 36 days, 37 days. 37 days, exactly. Uh, a long summer program, perhaps, but, <laughs> you know, not more than that. So Moshe has a lot to review and a lot to share. Um, you know, as to the question of repetition, Mishneh Torah, Certainly, some of the material in this book is a repetition, but some of it is not. I find it interesting because there are certain things that he doesn't talk about. For example, in this book, he doesn't repeat uh, the Mishkan, the question of uh, the tabernacle, which takes up so much space in the Torah. And he doesn't, for example, retell the story of the Ten Plagues. So what's the criteria? It's a really good question. I'm I'm getting the sense, you know, there there are basically two things that are happening at this point in time. One is that Moshe is preparing to die. And that means that whatever it is that he feels is critical has to be communicated now. And of course, the other thing is that the people of Israel are on the cusp of entering Eretz Israel, 
And that's been sort of the buildup in Sefer Bimidbar as well, as we made our way, Parshat um, Chukat, Balak, Pinchas, Matot, Masay, all that stuff is sort of like, you know, uh, preparing us for entering the land. And we're at that point. It's not shortly. only entering the land, it's beginning our statehood, re-entering society, yes. coming into contact with other tribes and cultures. Yes, so it's, it's going to require a whole different skill set, I would say. Uh, the people of Israel maybe have been preparing for it, but they really um, are not fully able to appreciate the challenges that await them until they get there. So I would say you know, Moshe's main focus in Sefer Devarim is to prepare them i.e. what he's going to share, how he's going to tell the story, what he chooses to remember, and how he chooses to remember it are going to be conditioned by that fact. What is going to be the most helpful for the people of Israel when they enter the land? So can you give us an example from this parsha? Um, something that maybe he has to put special emphasis on here, that he didn't put em- that the Torah didn't put emphasis on, Previously. Okay, so I'll give you a, a classic example, which is that, you know, Moshe will begin the story of, uh, you know, the people's challenges and trials. And um, one of the things he will mention, sort of, you know, recounting the appointment of judges, which was an event that, well, it's a good question when it took place, but let's assume it takes place as the people prepare to leave Mount Sinai and, and enter the wilderness. And then Moshe will recall, I guess, one of the most pivotal moments in the story, which is the episode of the spies. Um, just to remind us, back in Parshat Shlach, the spies were sent at God's command, and um, 10 of them returned with a pessimistic report. The people panicked in spite of Kalev and Yehoshua's best efforts. They refused to go forward. And as a result of that, they were condemned to perish in the wilderness. So that was a 38-year delay, detour, I suppose. Obviously, it was pivotal. Right? So Moshe has to recall that event. But the question is, how will he recall it? And really, you might say with a hindsight of 38 years. So I want to briefly touch upon you know, some of the themes that Moshe mentions here that are not really necessarily part of the original version so let me just uh, let me just it's really interesting and until you said this i hadn't quite the first thing he talks about is the spies which is really what brought the previous uh, journey the previous mission to the land of israel to a halt it completely you know, derailed it derailed it yeah so it's critical for him that they don't make this mistake again and that's why it's first on his agenda first on the agenda and i would say uh recalled in a very very specific way tell us more um okay so back in the original version of the story which is in bimidbar chapter 13 say for uh, you know the book of numbers chapter 13 parshat shlach right we have basically a divine command to send the spies and that's how the story is announced um, we don't know what the people may or may not have been thinking before that moment. We do know that they were they had commenced the journey towards the land in Parshat Bahalotcha, and presumably they were thinking about the implications of that. And Parshat Shlach begins with God's command to Moshe to select 12 men, tribal leaders, in order to enter the land and to spy it out. Whatever. It's sort of a lengthy, you know, we could discuss that in its own right. But the point is, I, I would say in the in the original version, 
call it the the real version. What actual happened? You know what happened in real time? It was God's command that um, that propelled this mission forward. Okay. When Moshe retells the story in our parsha, um, he presents a completely different angle, right? As he sees it, God told the people. I'm in chapter one, verse number twenty-one. The land is yours, right? God has given you the land to possess. Go and possess it. Do not fear and do not be affrighted. Okay? And then the next verse, All of you gathered to me at that time, and you said, Let us send men before us in order to search out the land. They will, uh, they will return with some sort of guidance for us. The, the, the path that we will take and the cities that we will encounter. And the thing was good in my eyes. And I took those 12 men and they went on their way. So clearly a different beginning to the story. In other words, in, in Bamidbar, the initiative is God's, and here the initiative is the people. Correct. And I'd like to add a second feature, which is that Moses there tells them to look at the quality of the soil and the fruits. But here it seems that the thing they're really worried about is um, the entrance routes, the entrance yes. points. It is a more some strategic uh, mission here. Good. So the, 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 the nature of the mission sounds different. Um, and, and the outcome is, is also different because Moshe reports here that they returned, I'm in verse 25, and they said, Tova ha'aretz, the land is good. The land which God, Lord, gives us is good. And you didn't want to go. But, which is true, except that in the original version, it was only two out of the 10, two out of the 12 that reported that. And that was Yehoshua and Kalev. So he's putting the blame on the people instead of the spies. Correct. The spies are blameless. They reported with a they returned with a positive report, and it was the people that Veloa Vitem La'alot that refused to go up. Right. So the question is, and this is a question that the commentaries deal with extensively, how do we reconcile these two versions? Um, and of course, the the underlying assumption is that they have to be reconciled. I think it's important to point out. Um, and sort of the traditional approach to inconsistencies and discrepancies, um, the the sort of preferred method for dealing with that is harmonization. We have to assume that the stories are somehow um, referring to the same thing, and we will have to work out the details such that we have a, har a harmonized account. Right. I always like uh, Rashi's way to harmonize who sent them. <laughs> that. The, the 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 people said we'd like to do this, and God said, "Well, if you if you insist, okay, good." So it's like, yeah, the people asked, and God said, but that doesn't seem to be the yes. thrust of the of it, the dissonance between the it two. Doesn't places. you know? And, and Rashi will sort of you know, based on that, uh, based on that harmonization, he'll turn it into a test, as if um, you know. God says to Moshe, "I'm telling them it's a good land. There's no need for this mission, but if that's what they want." Let them send the spies, and we'll see what happens in the end, right? right? So that's Rashi's method for kind of like pulling these two stories together, and Ramban will have a different interpretation. 
Um, but but both, really all the commentaries, the traditional ones at least, are sort of working with this idea that we want to somehow create consistency in the story. And I don't disagree, okay? But I think really the, the simplest and most elegant and perhaps most compelling way to address this discrepancy is to think about what it is that Moshe wants to tell the people, right? If I'm understanding Sefer Devarim as a whole, as not only Moshe's recollection of the events, but also his guidance and his teaching to prepare the people for the challenges that they will encounter in the new land, then obviously what he chooses to emphasize, what he chooses to leave out, how he chooses to remember is going to be really critical. And this is perhaps a larger discussion about memory as well. Right. It's interesting that we talk about history and in modern history, we talk about, you know, um, all, all different artifacts and uh, actual evidence. Uh, but of course, in the modern sense of history, then you have the word his story, right? Or what we were just talking about, Yosef Chaim Yerushalmi's book, History and Memory. And that the way we remember things is sometimes different from the way the actual facts. Yes. And one of the interesting questions might be, which is more authentic? <laughs> uh, are there, in a postmodernist world, people would probably say there are no objective facts. There are only narratives. Yeah. Um, or maybe there are objective facts, but they're always interpreted. Listen, you know, I, I think we all have selective memory um, on a personal level. We remember events uh, perhaps differently than they occurred, or we put certain emphases on moments that were not emphatic at the time. Yeah, there's a lovely study which says that if people go on vacation, even if the vacation was terrible and you lost you lost your suitcases, and uh, you know I don't know the, the 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 hotel was flooded, still you'll probably come back, and a year later you'll say, oh, that was such a fun vacation that we had. That somehow, and we we do that consciously. If you sort of check your photo album, I will I'll guarantee that most of the time people are smiling. <laughs> right. Um, and that sort of conjures up fond, you know, fond connections to whatever it was. But probably there were moments when we weren't smiling so much, but we're not going to capture those. So what's Moshe trying to do here? Is he is he deliberately uh, manipulating the story? Is he subconsciously manipulating it? So I, I, I would I would be I would be much less cynical. And I would say that what, what Moshe is actually doing is being an excellent teacher. Right. So an excellent teacher will recall the story to his students, his charges, right, in a way that's going to help them grow from that experience. So if I were to sort of like go through this for a moment, I would say there is no doubt that God commanded the sending of the spies. That's what's reported in Parshat Shlach, and that seems to be reasonable. At the same time, um, it's probably reasonable to assume that the people had their own ideas about sending spies as well. Um, and maybe they didn't articulate those as forcefully, but certainly it must have been in the background. After all, they're entering the land, right? Any reasonable uh, sort of approach to entering a new land would require that the Ramban says as much in his discussion. Right. Later, Joshua sends spies for the same reason. Correct. And Moshe sends spies as well, you know, um, at the end of Parshat Chukat, right, to Yazir, and they spied out Yazir and they conquered it. It's perfectly reasonable to do so, right? What Moshe is doing in remembering the role of the people is putting the emphasis and really the onus on them. 
so that God, as it were, in his command becomes secondary and the people's choice becomes primary. And that's really the most important lesson that motion can communicate, which is, um, I guess, the life in the wilderness is a life of being an object where basically God will um, dictate the terms of what that experience is like. But the life in the land, you have to be a subject. And to be a subject means you have to make decisions. And to make decisions means that you have to live with the consequences. And not be gripped by your fears, not live a life gripped by fear. Correct. So, you know, make the best decision you can. And then, you know, it, it may be a fateful one. And the consequences will, will be what they are. The, the chips will fall where they may. Um, and I think Moshe is emphasizing that to the people by shifting the onus from God to them, as if to say, you had a role to play in the sending of the spies. And in the end, it's that kind of a role that's going to be the most important in terms of entering the land. I love that empowerment. And it's, it's sort of, for me, joins up with, in fact, what Moshe mentioned before even he mentions the spies, which is that he, he had a little crisis. He had a little crisis and he said, I can't cope with leading this people and I had to delegate. And one of the ways I've always sort of perceived this uh, little mini story that he says is that he's saying, I'm dispensable. <laughs> I'm dispensable. There were times when even I couldn't cope as leader mm -hmm. and therefore don't be phased. Don't be jolted by the fact that I'm going to die shortly. Because ultimately, yeah, sometimes I got it right and sometimes I didn't. Yes. And, uh, and now it's up to you guys. Now it's up to you. And even if, you know, he will have a successor who, who has already been appointed, Yehoshua, um, the nature of Yehoshua's leadership will be different. Um, and the nature of, of entering the land is going to, again, create different challenges. But I would say the primary lesson for Moshe's retelling of the story in this particular case is to indicate to the people um, that they've got to make decisions and they've got to live by those decisions that they make. This is fabulous. I want to, I want to, you brought this, uh, this sort of piece to us and I would like to add a little piece of my own, please. Um, which is, I've always been sort of a, a little puzzled by the opening lines of the Parsha because the opening lines of the Parsha give us this long list of places and then it says Bamibar in the wilderness, Ba'arava in the Arava, Mulsuf Ben Paran, There's no real point in me translating these. These are the names of places. And the question is why we need a, a sort of a laundry list of locations. Rashi says, well, these uh, Moshe is really coming to to him to criticize, to rebuke the people. And therefore, this is a list of all the places where they went wrong, where they sinned. Um, and that seems pretty stern. And also, I don't always, Moshe does uh, warn the people a lot about their errors, but I, I wouldn't say that the primary uh, tone of Sefer Devarim of the book of Deuteronomy is, is completely dour and down on the people and telling them how awful they are. Um, it's very instructive and it's, it, it, it's a very much a yes we can type of book. So I've always been sort of challenged by that interpretation of Rashi. Mm -hmm. But we both studied with a teacher, Rav Yehuda Amital. 
And Rav Amital had a wonderful reading of this. And he says that what you see in the open, opening lines is a list of um, places. And then also it tells us the precise moment in which Moshe did this. It says in the 40th year, in the 11th month, on the first of the months, Moshe spoke to the people. So we've got specific time. We've got a bunch of places. Mm -hmm. And even it says that he taught them um Rashi there says he taught them in 70 languages, which is again a little absurd because did they speak Portuguese? Did they need to know the Torah in, you know, in Japanese? Ravamital said that there's something being said here. And what is being said is that the Torah that they're going to, to be taught here is relevant in a particular way in this place and time. Mm. But it's also going to be relevant for every other place, but in a slightly different way, in a slightly refracted way. And Moshe is saying, I'm teaching you this Torah, and I'm giving you it in a particular way. Today, in the 40th year, in the 11th month, <laughs> in this and this place, It was it, the Torah was different in the Arava than it was in the Suf, than it was in Paran, than it was in Tofel. Mm. Each place means that Torah needs to be applied in a new way. Um, each one of the 70 languages means Torah will be read within that cultural context. Wow. And um, as Moshe is transitioning, he's sending the message that Torah will always need to undergo some element of translation, cultural relevance. Mm -hmm. He's almost uh, communicating the malleability of Torah um, as he's moving on. He's giving them a reassurance that the Torah isn't something like those tablets of stone, which remain carved in stone, but it's, it's going to be constantly, and maybe that's the idea of this being Devarim, mm -hmm. the oral retelling, like, like you started by saying, it's always wow. going to be contextual. Beautiful. I mean, I think that's a beautiful idea about uh, sort of thinking about the material in a didactic way, you know, and I think Moshe is the ultimate didact that sort of Moshe Rabbeinu he's called that for a reason because he he is our teacher um I would I would sort of like you know maybe if I were trying to think through Rashi's uh you know critical or criticism by with those place names I might add and say you know the way Rashi explains it Moshe just alludes to those failures he doesn't spell them out Right, even though some of them were spectacular, but that's also a didactic move. Right, right. You want to you want to be constructive when somebody failed. Right, you have to be careful about how you say it and what you say and and uh, and what you share. Right, Rashi's languages. Right, he alludes to them. Beautiful. Right. So they for, for the, the honor of Israel. So for their honor to preserve their dignity. Right, but to nevertheless um, help them grow. And I, th I think that's sort of like Rav Amital's theme as well, that whatever the Torah is, that Moshe's teaching in Sefer Devarim, it's about growth. Um, constructive criticism, maybe instructive criticism, if there is such a phrase. Lovely. I'm going to take this to one final place because we're, Parshat Devarim is always read straight before Tisha B'Av. And I, I was wondering whether you could reflect every single year we get back down on the floor and we reenact a a ritual uh, of of mourning, and uh, we're re again remembering 
we're remembering the our sins, we're remembering the tragedies of Jewish history, we're remembering the Khurban, we're remembering the destruction of the temple, you know, 2,000 years ago, and the first temple 2,500 years ago. And once again, we're sort of, um, how should I say it, we're caught, not caught, we're sort of engaging in a process of, of memory. So can you reflect maybe a little bit of that, about that? You know, you've been talking about didactic, you've been talking about how we retell a story. Is there a particular, I don't know, dimension that you think about when it comes to Tisha B'Av? Is there something relevant to Tisha B'Av in, I don't know, 2022 that is different than 2021? Or You know, it's, it's, it's really a, a remarkable question you're asking because, you know, I, I just want to put this in perspective that we have fast days commemorating our destruction that refer to events that took place before most civilizations were born, i.e. we already are commemorating our destruction before other civilizations came into which is which wow. is which is startling, yeah, right? But again, it's it's not for the sake of wallowing in the grief. It's for the sake of taking those lessons, whatever they were, and and applying them to to our lives today. Um, I happen to think, and obviously I'm not the first one to say this or the last, that you know the lessons of Tisha B'Av are incredibly relevant for our current situation because we happen to have a Jewish state, right? And a Jewish state implies uh, certain privileges and certain challenges that earlier generations perhaps did not face. And, and I think whatever the lessons of the Ninth of Av are, um, they can guide us in, in how we will proceed. Well, I think that's a great, a great food for thought, and that'll allow us to sit reading Eicha, reading the Book of Lamentations, and to really think about its messages for today. So, Michael, thank you so much. Thank you, Alex. Always a pleasure to learn with you, Bechavruta. Me too. And uh, we'll see you all back at Pardes in the Bet Midrash. Thank you. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you again for downloading this podcast, a production of Pardes North America. If you liked what you heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on Spotify for the latest episode of Pardes from Jerusalem. 